Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and today we'll be talking about surviving a violent attack. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Mantis X. I recently upgraded to the Mantis X X10 Elite Shooting System. It gives me the same data-driven feedback of a Mantis X for recoil management and also gives me holster draw feedback for my pistol, allowing me to improve both my shooting and my drawing during the same training session. For June 2020, I have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. You can get 10% off any order from Mantis by using discount code FTP10 at checkout. This will expire on July 1st, so go out to mantisletterx.com and use discount code FTP10 before it expires. Today, we are joined by Thomas Yoxel, who found himself in a violent attack three years ago and took action. And he, he's here today to talk about it with us. Welcome, Thomas, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Doing, doing great. I know we've been talking for a little while, and uh, you've got a really, really fascinating story to tell our uh, listeners. But before we jump into to, uh, that story, can you tell our listeners just a little bit of your background and uh, you know, where, you, where you learned firearms to begin with? Yeah. Um, so I'm born and raised here in Arizona. Um, I currently live in a city called El Mirage, which is a far west suburb of Phoenix. Um, I started shooting at the age of five. Uh, my old man was a shooter and a hunter. Um, started hunting at the age of six. Uh, so up until the time I was 21, uh, there was my shooting experience. So um, it was definitely more oriented on the firearm safety than training as we know it today. Um, and it wasn't until I turned 21 and purchased my first handgun uh, here and started training at the local range, the local indoor range consistently, um, that I started making friends with uh, instructors there and through that meeting other instructors. Um, and then it's when my training really took off. So I tell people that even though I've been shooting since the age of five, They've been actively training since the age of 21, and I'm 47 now, so it's 26 years of training. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's my firearms background, and I try to do as much range time as I can. Um, I'm fortunate right now uh, to work for a local group, uh, C2 Tacticals, for doing their photography and their video and their content. So whenever I go to the range to do work for them, I take my range bag and and make sure I get at least a, a good hour, hour and a half uh, trigger time. Then. So okay. that, that yeah. is really cool. Kind of wish my job involved that so I could go and uh, get trigger <laughs> time every time right. I go to work. But hey, we've all got our crosses to bear, right? Right. <laughs> so, hey, I heard about you on Meet the Pressers uh, podcast. thought it was a really interesting story because from an instructor standpoint, we've read, read books, we go along and convey to our students what they should expect, what they should, how they should interact with the law enforcement, how they should shoot, practice, you know, certain skills, different things like that. But I think today, really excited because get to talk to somebody who, who actually applied those skills, who can go along and really give us that firsthand knowledge 
that we can pass on to our students so it can make it more real for them. Because hopefully, hopefully, our students never have to be in a situation like this. But if something does happen, as instructors, we want our students to have the best possible knowledge so that they can uh, survive and persevere through the uh, instance. Can you go along and give our listeners, Thomas, a little bit of uh, background of what led up to this event? Um, yeah, so I'll get the the short abridged version um, as opposed to the Stephen King stand unabridged version. <laughs> um, so uh, January 12th of 2017, I was uh, driving to Disneyland um, with a companion and uh, it was approximately 4.30 a.m. So it's pitch black. Anybody who knows the area, that area by 10 mile marker 89, you're you're literally in the middle of the open desert. There's there's nothing around you. Um, we came across uh, Arizona State Trooper Edward Anderson. Um, now, we didn't realize he had already been shot once in the right shoulder. Um, the only thing that we were witnessing was the suspect on top of him. Um, and I tell people to think of a UFC fight where one person has the other person full mount and they're, they're pummeling him. Um, and he was slamming Trooper Anderson's head into the asphalt. Um, so I, I immediately look at, look at my companion um, and tell her to call 911. And at that point, I went, when I say autopilot, it wasn't that I was detached from the situation, but it was the culmination of at that point, you know, three years ago, I'm 44, so 23 years of training kicked in. And so there was no, what do I do? What do I do? It was just a series of sequential movements. Um, I pull my vehicle over, giving myself enough space, what I perceived as enough space distance uh, to perform what needed to be done. Um, I exit my vehicle, I bridge a gap of approximately 80 feet in roughly seven to 10 seconds. And I fired four shots uh, with three hits, uh, one to center mass, two to the head. Um, I still give myself heartburn and grief over not getting the second center mass shot. You know, just one of those things. It's like, how do you miss a, a center mass shot? Um, and the successful outcome, if you want to look at it that way, was uh, Trooper Anderson survived his injuries. Um, the bad guy did not. Um, and so from that aspect, yes, uh, uh, righteousness beat out evil that day. Uh, but the subsequent aftermath, um, emotional aftermath and everything is something that I don't feel uh, a majority of civilian gun owners uh, realize uh, that that toll, that price you're going to pay for that. And it's something that should be talked about as well as the training, because I've always said that we, we train not for success, but to improve our odds of a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. There are a few things that could have gone wrong that morning um, to reduce the likelihood of a positive outcome or causing there not to be one. And so um, there's a lot to learn from the incident itself. Mm -hmm. So, well, you've laid out pretty much, you've, I mean, you can't came across a felony in, in progress. You acted decisively with it. You called 911 immediately. You, what did you do after, you know, the suspect, you know, you, you shot him and this trooper Anderson was there and the suspect was, oh, was no longer a threat to him. Right. Um, so, and for some people who might ask, well, wow, that was really quick. What actually happened? So when I exit my vehicle, I'm exiting. And if you look at like the a clock phase, I would be in the nine o'clock position and Trooper Anderson was in the three o'clock position. Um, I'm being blinded by his lights from the cruiser. So I step to the 10 and I'm walking 
you know, 10, 11, 12 o'clock position. And as I'm doing that, I'm checking off what I perceive might be threats. There was a dead female there. I'm looking to see if suspect has anything in his hands. Trooper Anderson has his weapon still holstered, his pistol. Um, suspect's pistol was actually in the left lane with the slide lock back. So I knew it wasn't loaded and that's out of the equation. I'm also trying to position myself as I'm advancing forward because the entire time I'm advancing forward at no time am I stopping, I'm just moving. Um, I'm putting myself in a position where I have a clear line of fire because I don't want Trooper Anderson to be in that line of fire. Um, I call out to Trooper Anderson, Trooper, do you need assistance? He gives the affirmative. At that point, I command the suspect to stop. The suspect actually shouts back at me, shut up. Um, some people will be like, well, how do you know we heard you? Because he looked at me and told me to shut up. So that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty clear. Precise. He wasn't going to stop. Yeah. Um, and at that point I push forward. Um, I, I go to work now after the threat was over, I, I see a lot of guys train and they do the look behind the shoulder. Okay. So it's, for me, it wasn't like that. It was, if there's one bad guy, there could be two. And it was actually, do I see anything out in the open desert? Is there anything behind Trooper Anderson's car? Um, my companion had just got off the phone with 911, but there was that immediate, now let's go into first responder mode. So I kneeled down by Trooper Anderson. Um, I let him know he's going to be okay. Ask him what his injuries are. Um, I'm giving directives to my companion to find a first aid kit in the back of his cruiser. Let's start treating him. I know there's only so much I can do, but I want to try to stabilize them as quickly as possible um, while we're waiting for additional law enforcement and first responders to arrive. Well, did they respond to the 911 call or was the uh, Trooper Anderson able to uh, press his officer need assistant button? So they responded to the 911 call okay. and there were, there were actually several 911 calls before ours, but they were for a rollover vehicle accident. And that's what Trooper Anderson was responding to was a single vehicle accident. Um, and when he arrived on the scene and he found the suspect holding the dead female on the side of the road, the suspect's pointing out to the right shoulder area. He scans with his flashlight and he sees a rolled vehicle. So in Trooper Anderson's mind, this is a rollover vehicle accident. It's an accident. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to act accordingly. Um, the suspect just had other plans at that point. Um, mm -hmm. And so the preceding 911 calls were all about a vehicle accident. Ours was one that was actually about what was going on. My companion, Heidi Jones, it should be noted, she performed extremely well for being thrust into that type of situation. Um, she gave clear instruction uh, to the 911 operator on what was going on, the mile marker where we were at, and... Um, what we assumed were the extent of Trooper Anderson's injuries at that point. Um, so after we get off the phone and I'm rendering aid, um, another civilian actually did stop. Um, although, I mean, he didn't really do anything, but I'm glad he stopped at least, Hey, what's going on? Um, the first trooper on the scene was started in uh, Bill Westick, uh, with Arizona DPS. And, um, he came rolling out of his cruiser hot with his AR slung and the low ready. Um, before he arrived, I knew what was going to happen and at any moment. So I had actually feeling confident there was no additional threat. I had placed my firearm in the right shoulder area. Um, when Sergeant Westick gets out of his vehicle, exits, I immediately throw up my hands and I start relaying information to him. My name's Thomas. This is Trooper Anderson. He has a GSW to the right shoulder. Dead bad guy. There's a dead female, you know, 50 to 60 feet behind me. Um, these two 
with me, basically, because I want to hand the, the responsibility of the securing the scene from me. I want to hand that off to him as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I want him to be, for lack of a better term, at ease. Um, so he knows that we're not suspects. We don't mean him any harm. And now he can uh, proceed with the most important part. And that's getting aid for Trooper Anderson, making sure aid was on the way. Did they separate you from the scene? Um, they um, did. So they didn't. And, and I, I, again, I can only speak from my experience. So DPS, I felt handled the situation very well. They didn't necessarily treat us like suspects. They didn't put us in handcuffs, but they did separate us because that is protocol. So I'm in a cruiser. The other civilian was in a cruiser and Heidi Jones was in a cruiser. Um, and that's standard issue because when they roll up, it's a crime scene. It's an active crime scene. They have to mm-hmm. figure out what happened first before they can rule it any other thing. Um, and I get that, but they were still, uh, I, I always say there's a right way to go about things in a wrong way. They, act, they did it the right way. You know, they weren't, they weren't hostile. Um, of course, a lot of questions, a lot of pandemonium. Um, you know, it was a law enforcement professional who had just been shot and ambushed in the open desert. Um, so there's going to be some tension there, rightfully so. Um, but I felt that they handled it very, very well, as far as we were concerned, the way we were treated. How long did it take um, all the investigation at the scene to, uh, you know, while they were were keeping you separated and things like that? Um, How long did that take? So I would say at around the five hour mark ish, um, I had Detective Eric Lamb with DPS approach me. And at this point, I had been jockeyed around a couple different vehicles. I'm in a fire engine at this point. And he says, uh, Mr. Yoxel and Detective Eric Lamb, I would like to take you back to Buckeye, to Buckeye Police Station and uh, get your statement. And he let me know you do not have to. You're not obligated to. But if you're willing to, I would appreciate that. In my head, I've done nothing wrong. It's If there was ever a good shoot, not that I think good shoots the wrong word, a justified use of lethal force. That justified, was it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, yep, let's, let's go ahead and do it. And, and let's get it over with because in my mind, and this is one of the things that I experienced and from talking to others, similar in nature, um, everybody arrives. I'm in the DPS cruiser. I'm, I'm looking at my watch going, if I can get back on the road, <laughs> I can beat all the rush hour traffic to Anaheim, <laughs> you know? Um, uh-huh. So in my head, I'm like, this will be perfect. I'll give the statement. They'll bring us back to the truck. We can get in the truck and we can just get on to Anaheim. Um, because the truck, my truck to me represented safety and getting as far away as possible meant safety as well. And that, that was the only thing on my mind. So, um, so that's what they did. They took us back to Buckeye, gave a statement and then, they couldn't take us back to the vehicle right away. So they were nice and they, they bought us food, which I was happy about because we hadn't eaten since, you know, that morning, 4 a.m. Um, and then we got in the truck and, and we left. Um, about. Did they uh, confiscate your gun as evidence? Oh, immediately. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I eventually did get it back, but I didn't keep it. Uh, when Detective Lamb opened up the box, I got flop sweats and immediately started shaking and I closed the box and I said, yep, I'm done. I don't, I don't need this as a trophy on the mantle or anything like that. And so, um, I gave it to a local gun store here in uh, Avondale. I know the owners and they now use it as an example to CCW students that you don't need something fancy to defend yourself as long as you're properly trained, you know, which is a good thing. It's a great message. 
Um, you see a lot of people with a super hot rod, nitrous injected, you know, sidearm. And mm-hmm. yeah, you, you don't need all the bells and whistles. Effective you know training you, is what you, you need. You need training, good, <laughs> yeah. good, good head on your shoulders, and you can, you can make all the right decisions. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, they confiscated it, and, and I knew it was going to happen. Um, and so, you know, and then, like I said, they, they, they brought us back to uh, the vehicle, my truck, and, and we were on our way. So, so that was the, about a six six hour detour, um, going to Disneyland, uh, including the questioning and everything like that. So the shooting happened at approximately four thirty a.m. zero uh, four thirty, and I think we got back on the road at two p.m. was roughly the time. You, so, miss, you, you hit rush hour. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, though, uh, because they still had the freeway blocked off for so long, it was a while before we actually encountered any traffic so um i tend to closed for the remainder of the day um going westbound and uh, it was again some of the things that people don't think about when they're taking a ccw class or involved in training and everything um and not to be too graphic on your show but people need to understand so the final shot that i let go um came up underneath the suspect's chin i'd already shot him the side of the head it pushed it back and so that final shot was here um it it literally blew off the top of his head and so as i'm bent down rendering aid to trooper anderson there's there's blood pumping out of that entry wound um so when i get back in the truck and we're driving that's all i see replaying in my head and i'm like you gotta be kidding i, I don't want to see this i never want to see this again um but yeah I, I, that was burned in there so deeply that i couldn't get that image out of my head for about 30 minutes Mm-hmm. I, I could believe that. Uh, so. I mean, let me ask you this. You know, you talked about the firearm training that you, you did for the 24 years up till that point. Um, did you take any uh, first aid trauma uh, classes that you were able to use in order to, you know, slow down the bleeding uh, for Trooper Anderson? Yeah, I had taken some. Um, I definitely believe in being first aid CPR certified and I had taken some basic trauma classes. Um, in addition to the firearm background with my father, my mother was a trauma nurse, so I knew how to do sutures and all this stuff just from her, you know, mm-hmm. um, she was definitely, if you didn't need stitches, if the bone wasn't sticking out of the skin, I ain't taking it to the <laughs> hospital. And there's, there's a lot of time I had to patch myself up. Um, but having, having a training, but not having the proper tools to implement that training, um, is what mattered. So, uh, Trooper Anderson's first aid kit was not as robust as I thought it should have been. Having purchased my truck just recently, the only thing I had in it was jumper cables and some flares and stuff like that. I it didn't have my trauma pack in there. Um, since the shooting though, I have made an effort to, uh, take additional trauma courses that are definitely up to date on the training techniques, um, and, uh, tools that you should have uh, implementations to uh, assist and render aid under a majority of circumstances. So um, I think it's something that everybody should do. If you're going to learn how to make a hole, you should learn how to patch that hole as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Guns and knives have a purpose and, you know, when they're used just uh, justifiably and you've got holes and, and cuts and everything to, uh, to patch up on. Yeah. Is, there any, is there anything with what you've described to us um, that you would do differently? Um, I don't feel that I will. Like, I know one of the questions that was asked after I came forward, so it was about 10 days before I even came forward. I didn't want to come forward. I wanted everything 
just to go away. Um, but someone had asked if I would do it again. And I said, absolutely. You know, as sure as I'm standing here, I've, I've always been that person that said, if the need arised, I would be the one who would make the difference. And for me, the way my old man brought me up, the way my grandparents brought me up, um, you, you assist in a time of, of crisis. You don't stand there and watch idly. Um, and so I don't know any other way how to respond or to act or to be. Um, I had a friend point out one time, he's like, you realize whenever you talk about, you know, helping somebody, you're always, you know, pushing out like you're, you know, <laughs> all right, force a habit. Maybe I trained too much, you know, um, but I, I'm thankful that my father, I don't want to say beat into me, but definitely ground into me gun safety and the nature and responsibility of being a civilian gun owner. He was very, very strict on that. If you're going to carry a firearm, you have to be responsible. You have to learn how to use it, be intimate with it, know it. Um, and so that's always been in the back of my mind every time I did training. And it's because of that training, I was so successful. So would I do anything differently? No, I credit the instructors from my past who took the time to work with me and make sure that I was not average, but at a top level. So if I needed to intervene, I was able to and had a greater chance of success. Um, and Lord forbid, I would never want anybody to be involved in a use of lethal force. Experiencing it, I would never want that on anybody. Um, but I also feel confident that if, the, if it happened again and I was in that situation, I would still respond and I would respond in the exact same fashion. So um, if there could have been a way for a non-violent end to that scenario, I definitely would have chose that route, but that wasn't going to be the case. Well, thank you for getting involved there. Uh, definitely. Um, and you're all, all the way out in Arizona and I'm in Ohio, but at the same time, uh, people getting involved at the right times for justified reasons, uh, that's worth it, you know, yeah. for all of us to think about. Let me ask you this, because uh, I'm sure this comes up because everybody always wants to know this. What kind of gun did you use for this? So funny, haha. Um, <laughs> so my first gun was a Ruger P89. Back in the day when I was 21, it was the cool gun to have. Um, then I had one of the instructors at the local range go, I'm going to get you on a 45. So the 1911 was my platform for many years, although I carried an H and K USP 45. That was my favorite 45 of all time. Um, I transitioned back to nine millimeter. I'm a Glock guy through and through, um, before I go into Disneyland, I realized, gosh, I don't have a compact Glock. I don't have a Glock 26. So I go down to buy one. They were out. And so I'm like, I guess I got to get a Springfield. <laughs> so I actually bought, right? You know, and nothing. Hey, if you can shoot a Springfield well and that's your gun of choice, God bless you. It's just like some guys drive Ford, Chevy, Dodge, you know, pick your poison. Mm -hmm. um, so I brought uh, a Springfield XD9 compact and not being familiar with an XD9. I mean, essentially a handgun is a handgun, but they're all going to have a unique characteristic, in my opinion, that you should know. Um, went down to the range, made sure I got, you know, a good total before I left for the trip. It was about five, six hours of shooting time on that XD, and that's what I took with me because I wanted to make sure I had something that I could conceal. Um, obviously, I wasn't going to take it inside Disneyland, but uh, just for walking around the street doing photography and everything like that. And one of the questions... 
that was brought up, they're like, hey, you were on your way to California. It's, it's actually against the law. And what would you have done, you know, had you been in California and encountered that same scenario? I'm like, I would have responded the exact same way. And if the great state of California chose to prosecute me, actually, I said, if the great state of Czechoslovakia chose to prosecute me, <laughs> um, there would have been a line of people around the courthouse willing to pay for my attorney, you know, because right is right. And as far as being a, a Second Amendment person, I firmly believe that if you are going to give the criminal element the right to use whatever means they can get their hands on at their disposal to rob, inflict harm, or potentially kill me, I should have the right to level that playing field wherever I'm at. And so when I travel, I always take my Glock 26 with me. Um, and whether it's a state that allows it or not, I have it with me. And maybe I shouldn't say that out loud, but it's a fact because I will not be put in a situation where I cannot properly defend others or defend myself because someone who is so disattached with what's actually going on in the streets decided guns are bad and you shouldn't be able to use one to defend yourself. Nope, not going to happen. You know, I'll, I'll take the misdemeanor charge. You know, uh, and that's just the way. Could the be way worse. There could be worse things, right? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Now here, here's a good question. Hopefully, all, all our instructors out there are going to listen up and take some notes with us. Thomas, you as being a survivor of a violent, critical incident, what would you tell the instructors out there that they need to tell every single one of their students when they come to their CCW class that maybe they're not telling them now? Um, so the CCW classes that I've participated in as far as an assistant or have spoken, um, because the instructor is like, Oh, there's Thomas. That's the guy I was just telling you about. Come say a few words. Um, I would almost start out with, this is not Hollywood. This is real life. And, you know, make sure they know and they should forget anything they've ever seen on TV. It, it's glamorized and it's not the way it happens. Um, there are very, it's, it's a high price to pay, okay, if you're going to be the one that gets involved. Um, and training, training, training. A CCW does not make you qualified. It, it really doesn't. It just says you can carry your gun concealed. It means, it um, means you can be safe about it. That's yeah. all. Um, so I would really want to see instructors drive home, you know, in the best way that they can uh, to their students that this is uh, the totality of it. If you carry a firearm, if you say you're going to uh, take on that responsibility, that enormous responsibility, you should know what it's really about and you should know what the real consequences are because there was no high fives. There was no going to the bar with my buddies and having a drink afterwards and then going home to a beautiful house and sitting in a jacuzzi with, you know, some hot model wife or anything like that. It was completely effed up. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and there was bouts of shaking and flop sweats and crying when I realized, Oh my God, did I just really do that? And we're talking like the next day I had a breakdown, like, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, it's a lot. It's, it's a huge, huge cross to bear. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a good support system. You know, I had a lot of people who I was already friends with within law enforcement that I was able to reach out to. And I was able to talk to my pastor and look for guidance from him. And 
it, it, that's what they, that's what they really need to drive home. And don't get caught in being that person who says, well, I go to the range all the time. Okay. So you're shooting a silhouette at 15 feet away and this is all you're doing. Bang, 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 bang. The moment I exit my truck, I'm on a 360 degree theater. And so now I'm in charge of that full 360 degrees. And if it wasn't for the amazing instruction that I had received over um, my time as an adult, um, I would have not been prepared for that scenario. I, and, and that's another thing that I think instructors really need to drive home. Get out of the stagnant, static range and start taking outdoor classes because they don't call it a dynamic critical incident for nothing. The only thing that was missing from that morning was snow or rain. And then the trifecta is complete. I'm in the middle of the open desert with no help anywhere near close by. No it's, lights around you. Yeah. Pitch yeah. black. You know, I don't even have a light on my pistol at that, at, you know, because it was so new and they can find one fit on the bottom of it. But um, yeah, that was a perfect storm. And, you know, and, and so that's something they really did the realism of it and forget about the Hollywood and the fantasy and the guys, and again, everybody's different. It's my opinion. You get these guys that rig up and, you know, they're tryhards and I get it. But that morning I was in shorts, tennis shoes, and a hoodie. I was not in a full battle rattle rig. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's what I train in. I train in what I wear every single day. Sure. Do I put my rig on every once in a while? Yes. Cause it's fun. And you do different drills that way, but you think people need to train with a sense of realism. Yeah. Well, we got to realize that the bad guy picks the time. We don't. Yeah. No. So it no. Can, it can, you know, it can happen. You know, when we walk outside, it can happen on a bright sunny day or a rainy day. It doesn't yeah. matter. But we've got to perform, and the bad guys already got the you know, upper hand on us because they can pick. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this right now, and we've got to react to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a good friend of mine is an instructor. He's, I've known him for many, many years, and he was one of the first instructors I worked with. He used to always tell me, you train at 120% every time you're on the range or outdoors because when the time comes, you don't have a choice of the circumstances, so you need to be ready for everything. So never lollygag on your training. If you're not in the mood to go to the range, don't because what you start doing at that point, you're going to mimic if the time comes. So... So yeah, it's, it's all good advice. It, it all, it all uh, is a key factor. That's great information for our instructors to really kind of take to heart and pass it on to our students. I mean, you've got it right there, you know, from somebody that survived about what was critical to him. So I appreciate advice for him. Yeah. Hey, we've been asking all our guests this year on the podcast about what books, websites, and like YouTube channels you might be following, listening to, and different things like that just to further your own per- personal development. What can you share with our listeners? Um, so uh, most of the YouTube channels I follow um, are instructional channels uh, for photography and video. Um, and uh, I'm kind of a, a tech science nerd. So <laughs> um, uh, the hybrid shooter uh, on YouTube is really good if you're wanting to do photo and video with the same camera. Um, Mark Gaylor, if you happen to be a Sony camera user, which is one of the cameras that I use, um, platforms I use, um, is an amazing source of knowledge for any Sony platform system. Um, super, super good guy. Um, Curtis Judd is where I learned how to do all my audio uh, for my video work. And that guy's on point. Um there's an, when these people, if I've ever had a question after watching one of their videos or anything like that, um, man, I email them and 
I'm telling you, 24 hour turnaround at the very most. And they're, they're engaging with me and stuff like that. So they're very serious about the instruction and the knowledge that they're trying to pass on to other people. So, uh, definitely a good group. If you're a creative uh, person like me, uh, to watch and, and be involved with. Well, that's, that's uh, really great because, uh, I'm sure there's instructors out there that are looking for videos or, or, uh, audio onto their website and different things like that. Maybe some of those channels, they will, uh, you know, can follow also. Yeah. Don't learn too much on those channels, those guys, because that's where you need to get a hold of me and, and hire me for your content, <laughs> your photography and stuff. So yeah, um, that's a great segue into the next question, Thomas. Right. Where, where can people find more about Thomas Joxel? Um, so, uh, real quick, if I can, it was funny. So I'm in the questioning and everything and detective lamb, who was an amazing human being, a totally awesome guy goes, Hey, what are we going to find on your social media? Cause this is where it falls apart for everybody. There's something on there, you know? And I'm like, guys, I, I just started my social media cause I just started doing <laughs> photography. It's boring. I don't post anything. So the other detective goes out and comes back about 20 minutes later and he literally tells me, you have the most boring social media feed I've ever seen. There's nothing on there but a bunch of photos. Yep, that's me, um, which I'm fine with. Um, so I tell people they can follow me on Facebook and they can look me up as Thomas Yoxel and that will actually have links to my other two Facebook pages. Uh, one is SureShot Photography AZ and the other SureShot Productions AZ. But everything I post on those goes directly to my home feed. Um, so if they were to look me up, they'll see all the photos, all the stories that I've written, live broadcast, everything. Um, if you choose to follow me on uh, Instagram, it's sure shot photo. So sure underscore shot underscore photo. And that is going to be an embodiment of my personal work, um, which is primarily monochrome. I would say about 90, 98% monochrome. And then sure shot productions, all one word is all my tactical photography. So it's the photography I've done of three gun matches, short video, excuse me, short video clips, um, uh, range uh, photography and everything like that. And I think there's some really good stuff. Um, I feel that as <clears throat> it's completely two different types of photography, but if we're talking about the range photography and the tactical photography, I'm in a new position because I'm also an, an active shooter, an active trained shooter. So I know where to be to get those shots. I'm also working with a great group of men and women so I can put myself in positions that should never, I'm not condoning it in any way at all, but you should never be in to take a photograph of someone running a drill um, and keeping pace with them. But it's how I'm able to get that content, how I'm able to generate those photos for people. So, um, you know, I feel blessed more than I deserve to be quite honest. And sometimes people say it as cliche, but I, I believe it. Um, you know, I've, I've been given a, a great career the second half of my life. I've had the opportunity to meet great individuals like you um, through through my journey and everything. And and I, I give credit and thanks to the Lord for that. I mean, he's the one who put me there that morning to save Trooper Anderson. You know, there's too many things that had to line up absolutely perfectly for me to be there at that decisive critical moment. So, um, so yeah. So if you want to look me up real easy, like I said, Thomas Shoxel Facebook. Um, you can reach out to me um, if anybody has any questions, um, additional questions about uh, what I experienced uh, from a learning standpoint. Um, I'm an open book. Uh, I'll answer any question uh, anybody has to ask. So, and I'm always looking for feedback. I'm, I'm always willing to help. So, 
That sounds really great. Well, hey, again, we really thank you coming on, on this podcast. Um, it's the first time we've had a survivor actually on the podcast, give perspective. And I think hopefully all the instructors can take a little bit away from this to say, hey, maybe I need to go along and press a few more points to the students a little bit more and give them a little bit of realism, maybe even going along and play this podcast for their own students to uh, listen to you, you know, firsthand for it. Yeah. Um, and, and I agree. And, and I appreciate reaching out to me and asking me to be on, you know, I feel privileged for that. Um, I know I met the guys from meet the pressers at shot show in January. It was great to connect with them. Um, I had a blast on their show. I did with this and um, I, I would say, over the last several years, there's been a shift, in my opinion, from what I've seen in meeting individuals like you, where now people are really starting to look at the mechanics of being a trained private gun owner, okay, which is great. Um, I hope that continues to blossom and increase with quality content and training, um, uh, because I think it's, it's tantamount. Um, the more people we have that are educated, uh, the better off we are as a society, especially Amen. when it comes to firearms and, and Second Amendment rights and stuff like that. So I, I think you're doing a beautiful thing by doing this, and, and I'm happy to be a part of it, to play my little part. Yeah. Well, thank you for those compliments, and thank you for being on the show again. Well, that's a wrap for this episode, and we have a few requests. I ask you to share this episode with your listeners uh, on Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you go along and have your social media presence. Why? Because we want to get Thomas's story out there and get his perspective into to more people to listen to it. Like and rate our podcast and the other concealedcarry.com network podcast also. If you have any ideas for episodes, questions, feedback, please email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. And remember to visit our sponsors, especially the Firearms Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having insurance coverage. Remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Pass this information on to your students and stay safe out there, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.